Welcome to the IAB UK podcast. Hello and welcome to the IAB UK podcast. From the IAB, I'm James Chandler, and this is the third of three special episodes we're sharing in the lead up to Engage 2022. Engage is, of course, the IAB's flagship event, which returns in real life next week from a two year pandemic induced hiatus. You can expect a full morning of back to back, all killer, no filler sessions, each just 10 minutes long and getting into themes like the neuroscientific impact of sound on our brain, how AR is driving sustainability and how distinct communities online have been built and grown over the past 18 months. In curating this agenda, our intention has always been for you to leave the Londoner in Leicester Square smarter than when you walked in, proud of the industry you work in and buzzing with optimism about the future of the internet and the advertising that funds it. So for these special episodes, I've picked out a handful of my favourite engaged sessions, a conversation with Stacey Dooley, a pre-Dragon's Den Stephen Bartlett, and possibly the best thing to ever come out of lockdown, aside from the vaccine, the Ken Fors listening party, an audio goggle box come DVD director's commentary, where the stars of the greatest swindle in advertising event history rewatch the infamous session from the Barbican together again for the very first time. And rounding off these special episodes, it is that story of and the story behind the infamous Future of News session from Engage 2017, where we introduced an actor onto the stage, convinced the packed Barbican auditorium that he was legit, and then handed over to one of the world's most renowned sports journalists responsible for exposing Lance Armstrong's doping scandal. A journalist, might I add, who we didn't even bill for the event. It was an undertaking like no other I've been involved with at the IAB, with all of the major UK news brands coming together to deliver a poignant message about fake news and about the importance of quality journalism. And the audio you're about to hear was a podcast we recorded virtually in peak lockdown for the COVID engaged pivot that we called Stay Engaged, which was a series of engaged like sessions just off stage as podcast episodes. And I won't say much more than that as it all gets covered in the intro that you're about to hear next. Enjoy this one. Hello and welcome to the Ken Falls Listening Party. I'm James Chandler, Chief Marketing Officer at IB UK, and today we're reliving arguably the greatest session in the history of IB Engage. Three years ago, we introduced an actor onto the stage, convinced a packed Barbican auditorium that he was legit, and handed over to one of the world's most renowned sports journalists responsible for exposing Lance Armstrong's doping scandal. The journalist, might I add, who we didn't even bill for the event. Of course, I'm talking about IAB Engage 2017's Future of News presentation, which involved all of the major UK news brands coming together with the IAB to deliver a poignant message about fake news and the importance of quality journalism. And as a one-off, we've got the band back together to talk about how it all came together on the day, share stories from behind the scenes and reflect on what's changed three years down the line. So it's with pleasure that I can introduce David Walsh, Chief Sports Writer at the Sunday Times, Brian Torfer 
Cooper, who played the role of Ken Falls expertly back in 2017. And joining them, Ollie Lewis from News UK and Nick Hewitt from Guardian News and Media, who were both integral to the invention of Ken and, of course, pulling it off on the day. What you can expect from the next 30 minutes is effectively an audio goggle box come DVD director's commentary. We're going to re-watch the session together, and typically we'd have rented the Odeon in Leicester Square or something like that, but these are extraordinary times. So we find ourselves in different rooms across different parts of the UK and even across two different time zones, eight hours apart, no less. So welcome to you all. Thank you very much for joining us. How about we play the film and get stuck in? So here we go. So this is The Sting and Ken or Brian. What should we call you? Ken or Brian? Ken or Brian? (laughs) Up to you. Hi, everyone. My name is Ken Fawes. I'm a journalist. So this is it. He's on. I mean, we we had to sort of keep your identity Uh, a bit shtum as well, didn't we, Brian? Because of some other work that you were doing. But you were pure method, weren't you? Even in the green room, you were were Ken Fawes that day. (laughs) It's true. It was was very weird. Um, um, I didn't have any uh, anxiety about... You had said, oh, be discreet, um, meeting people, but... um, the only person I really actually spoke with was David backstage. And the general feeling was um, two under-rehearsed actors about to go on for... <laughs> and David, you'd, I think you'd flown in overnight, hadn't you? You'd like got in early hours of the morning. Like You'd never met Ken before. This, this was all being sort of made up on the day. Yeah. I blame myself because I said, yeah, I'll do this, no, no problem, having no idea what was involved. I got to the Barbican quite early and I met Ken and I thought, well, I know you're an actor, Ken, you're going to pretend to be a journalist and I'm going to come along and call you out. And, some time as for the and I'm sitting in this audience the <laughs> and I'm believing Ken. You know, I've kind of lost faith in the fact that he's an actor. <laughs> yeah. And I'm thinking, this guy sounds like a pretty authoritative journalist. No, the, the managing editor type who, whose only interest is the bottom line. And I'm thinking... You know what? Um, I'm going to have to say something here. And I, I, I actually had my my phone with me, my iPhone, and I started Googling the Cincinnati Sentinel. Yeah, that's the one. That's about as method as it gets, isn't it? And I realized it, it, it didn't exist as a newspaper. And I was thrilled. Did we tell you the name of the paper? Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I said, I've got something to go on now because this guy is so authentic. I love the fact that we even convinced you. I mean, that was brilliant. He's reading his Wikipedia entry here. We, I mean, that was one of the very first things we sort of faked. It's based on a guy actually called Ken Fallon, who is an artist, I think, in the States. He's a performance artist type thing, so it was very easy to do it. But we just had so much fun making up all that stuff, and there's lots of Easter eggs in there. This is the Sentinel's homepage from November 3rd. One of the Easter eggs is on this slide. At the bottom, you see it's copyright FN Publishing. FN standing for fake news. I mean, we just hid loads of these things in here. <laughs> Nick, you were in the room when Ken was in his embryonic state, and you sort of came up with that, I believe. Well, I called him Ken Swaith. Right. 
Traffic Max. I had fake news and I was trying to make something from the anagram. Yes. I got Ken Swaith <laughs> and it just sounded a bit naff. <laughs> it would have been a giveaway. Ken Swaith would have been a giveaway. And I think it was Tim at the IAB or maybe Ollie who who turned it into fours. Ollie, you can take credit for this one very quickly. I don't know. I'm going to give that to Tim. I, 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 I think... <laughs> But it really was that moment, wasn't it? When it actually, when you were doing that, Nick, and it all fell into place. It was like this is this is quite brilliant. <laughs> Web traffic to the Sentinel homepage has exploded, and not one journalist has written a single word. How did we get in touch with you, Brian? Because I think the request came through the Guardian, didn't it? I think Nick had spoken to my old agent. Oh right. Oh, it's an insider job. I thought there were there was casting and auditions and all this sort of stuff. No, <laughs> as far as I know, just me. <laughs> was there any process in it? It was just Brian. We had one target. Yeah, it's just the same for us. I had one target. Convinced David this was a good idea. Our research team came up with a proprietary tool to measure our influence and compare it to other sites. We call it our influence index. So our research team. <laughs> we're, not, we're talking that about chart the biggest, that you've just seen the one with the influence thing right. the reason we did that is tim who's our chief digital officer you just mentioned is obsessed he hates proprietary technology where people use their own tech that they develop to prove a point and we thought we'd do it on this and we had a couple of people from facebook sat in the front row who have told me subsequently were absolutely seething at the thought that a platform is claiming to be bigger than they were during the trump election even they were totally taken in by this thing but yeah it definitely it rattled uh, it definitely rattled facebook's cage the future of news is not about human journalists it's about the ability of algorithms to analyze... We were trying to get people, Ollie, to dislike him, but not in an unbelievable way. Like, we just wanted to think he was a bit, you know, there was something up with him, but you didn't want to, we didn't want to blow our cover too soon. I think that was the genius of it, actually. It actually it felt believable. Now, I want to get more into that vision now. Good. I sat in the audience, and I could feel what they were feeling. And what they were feeling was, they were thinking, this guy... He's impressive, but he's scary. Mm. This is your moment, David. Ladies and gentlemen, I just want to say that I've been checking you. Oh, just look at some of those faces. I've Googled you. I've got to remember this. This was the most nervous I was through the whole thing. It was trying to find the moment when to prod David to stand up. <laughs> like, okay, come on, it's, it's coming up. It's, I had one cue sat next to you trying to get you, uh, and you did it just impeccably. I mean, this was the first time it happened. I love the faces. Who, who are you, Ken? <laughs> what are you doing here? Yeah, so this was my favourite bit as well, because I was not watching the action at this point. You, you're fake. I was watching the audience. You are a complete fake. Yeah, great. Ladies and gentlemen. Here we go. Ken is an actor. And he's done a terrific Ken's job. job. It is astonishing to think that there was absolutely no, there was no rehearsal. No, like, no that was the first time you'd done it, the both of you. It was brilliant. Yeah. First, time, first time they'd ever done it. Completely timing perfect. Um, I mean... I am a journalist. What can you say, David? Natural. Not perhaps as convincing as Ken. This is the most perfect bit here. This is the spine-tickling bit. My name is David Walsh. I'm chief sports writer at the Sunday Times. And I'm here to represent journalism. 
Oh, it just fits on the back of your neck. Like people just, I think the relief that they sort of like it was, it was slightly been revealed. But oh god, we got we got a decent journalist here as well. This is fantastic. In the making of video, I think I described this as throwing up, but I meant throwing up my hands in joy because that's how it really felt. Three o'clock in the afternoon, got into her car, switched it on, the car exploded. The thing is, guys, over the years since Lance Armstrong, I've done a lot of talks and there's been moments that have been good and... But that moment where the crowd kind of burst into spontaneous applause didn't want revealed. is my all-time favourite moment because what it was was people saying journalism does actually matter. Journalism is something we need if we have newspapers that we can trust. Society is a better place. It seemed like a vindication of everything that had drawn me into journalism, that we could be influential and we could stand for the right things. Soon after President Trump was inaugurated as president of the US, he began a campaign that said, mainstream media is fake. You cannot believe anything you read in mainstream newspapers. Do you know what happened at the New York Times? Pretty much immediately after that, they put on 93,000 subscribers in the three months after Donald Trump started his campaign about fake news. Because people Nick, could we do this today? Given we haven't done it in 2017, of course you can do the same thing again. Although I think Tim was did think about going and doing it in Manchester and doing the same thing, but it probably wouldn't have worked. But you could do the same session today, right? Given the climate around fake news, particularly what's going on with with coronavirus and stuff at the moment, to make the point. Well, it's happening today, isn't it? There's a story today about Keir Starmer. This is the letter and a fake or or a, of a heavily edited video, right? So I think sadly the conversation hasn't moved on. Fake news, a term invented by Donald Trump, is still very live. And I think if you throw forward, you've got an American election this November. Given that they might be able to campaign in the normal way, then. There's a very real danger that fake news can have a very real impact on that election. Reputable newspapers doing the right thing can be viable, can be profitable. But that really doesn't drive me. It doesn't actually, I mean, we need to survive, of course we do. We need to be commercially viable, of course we do. But ultimately, that's not what journalism is about. I mean, it seems to me that there's, this technology has moved on with the deep fake videos, which is actually, since we did this, been quite disturbing. And what we did didn't matter so much. And I kind of There's a really that. interesting point of view. Is a brilliant lady who talks in this called Nina Schick. And she said that the frightening thing with deepfake videos isn't that, you know, these very complex criminals and fakesters can use them and, and rogue states. It's the fact that the tools are so easy to use that you or I could do it. You know, I could convince you that it was David Walsh and I, and I had knowing nothing about coding or how to do it I could go onto the internet and I could get this stuff and I could create something to convince you and I think that's the scary bit when people can start to convince their boss or their friend or you know the, the everyday use of it rather than the, 
the kind of the main scale so it's yeah it's uh, of course it's we just had that lovely line from david which is I'd, I'd always been brought up to believe that sports was the toy department of the newspaper which i love to go on and what you've done is sort of incredible that that might be the case uh, we've had our first mention of lance armstrong as well he's in the he's in the picture and david's now talking about uh michelle smith those three gold medals in atlanta and then going on this i mean it's an incredible story about john david about the nativity and the gold which is just another thing where you start to look at the audience i think it was incredibly emotional for people and he delivered the line about the gold and it was that sort of brilliant brilliant moment well i think it's such a shattering story for so so many people because armstrong was such a hero to so many of us he was one of my sporting heroes and i couldn't believe that he was he passed or seemingly passed all these blood tests yeah run foul of the anti-doping authorities and get a suspension another thing happened in my life that was hugely but you sort of think about it in the context of today i know there's there's question marks on on people like mo farah knighted national hero but you can imagine like you know imagine just imagine if it came out that usain bolt this brilliant olympian fastest man in the world achieved. I mean it would just be devastating wouldn't it and you can get into the psyche of why people might prevent that from being known because and I forget the immortal line David but the beautiful lie is sort of better than the ugly truth be in our conversations we would never try to kind of exclude him so I went around and the thing about the Armstrong story that that was really influential and Nick you reminded me of it there. It's like so many people wanted this story to be true that even when they kind of suspected it might not be true, they convinced themselves that they were wrong to doubt it. Wow. They found a way of looking the other way. And uh, we still see a lot of that today. I mean, corruption flourishes where people are not interested in finding it. Baby Jesus is born and there's three shepherds coming. Which leads to the point, doesn't it, about how important it is to have someone like David with with the integrity in 13 years of a quest, to, you know. Yeah, 100%. Because it's interesting, this whole session, there's two points. It's about combating fake news, but it's also about funding quality journalism and truth. And it makes both points brilliantly, this story. And I think that's what's so powerful about it. This is the brilliant, brilliant gold line. What did they do with the gold that the three kings brought? And she said, John, I've been reading this story to classes for 33 years. And nobody has ever asked me <laughs> about so the gold. And the honest answer is, I don't know what they did with the gold. <laughs> and when I heard that story, I thought, wow, that's journalism. In one question, that's it. The obvious question. What did they do with the money? Where did it go? It's unaccounted for. <laughs> no, I, I have um, I have friends that, that and uh, I'm not going to name and shame them on this podcast. That um, I think uh, come home sometimes late, drunk, and watch this from back to back. <laughs> Do they? And introduce it to new people uh, sometimes outside of media, and they must think they're mad. It's funny. They often tell me, "Yeah, I watched uh, I watched Ken Falls again the other night." I'm like, this is weird, but yeah, but it, it had that impact. <laughs> <laughs> it is common parlance. I'm in a WhatsApp group with some other 
media agency people who use Ken Falls as common parlance for fake news. Wow. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, that's marvelous. They were sort of delighted. I don't know if Nick gets some sort of royalty from that or... I, must, I, I must feel do. like I should. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, I've got to say that I have watched it many times, but the part I love and the part that I focused on is Ken. Yeah. Because every time I see Ken delivering that spiel, he has me kind of wondering, if I didn't know the truth, would I believe he was a journalist? And I, every time I say yes. <laughs> and I think the way Ken set that up was just amazing. <laughs> and and the moment where I stand up, it works because everybody in the audience thinks I'm a freak. You know these kind of guys who who sneak into venues to disrupt, and they make everybody feel embarrassed. And even though the audience would have had reservations about Ken, they also had reservations about me. Yeah. So as I'm going up on the stage, the audience aren't sure who so, whose side they're on. And there was this incredible tension. Yeah, exactly. And I probably could have handled it better and spun it out a bit more, but I, I was kind of so nervous. I, I wanted to end it. <laughs> Do you know what? When you watch it back, I can't imagine it any other way now. It just sort of seems bizarre that it could be, and you can tell I've watched it because you know every single pause and all the agony and the jeopardy and, and all the rest of it. I, saw, I can't really imagine it any other way. We just had that brilliant line as well, David, where you said you rang Alex Butler. Um, uh, at the Sunday Times, and he was very excited about this young champion, and he won it. And he said to him, oh, "I think he's cheating." He's like, "Oh shit!" Just that sort of brilliant moment where he thought he had something great. But I mean, fair play to him for, yeah, for sticking by. Because journalists are fans too, you know, and sometimes we want the good story to be true. Well, mostly we want the good story to be true. And Alex's attitude was, you know, don't pee on my dream here. <laughs> I want this guy to win the tour. Because if he does win the tour, I will think that I needn't be so afraid of cancer. Because Armstrong was holding out one of the ultimate messages. You know, cancer doesn't mean a death sentence. In fact, you can come back from cancer and win multiple Tour de France's. Yeah. So, Lizzie, if you could roll this clip of Lance. This is the clip. So we don't have the clip for copyright reasons. But, you know, we're a not-for-profit trade body. We, you know, we, we can't afford these things. But the clip that's being played, David, is Chris O'Dowd, who played you, obviously. Yes. You get the go-ahead to write the story, then it cuts to Lance on the balcony. And the bit that you're saying now is the story about it was actually Lance's house, wasn't it? Yes, it was. The actual house he lived in in Austin. And when the fall came, that house became too big for Lance. And he had to sell it. And the guy who bought it rented it out to the film company. Uh, right. 
and that's where the scene was shot. Incredible. And to give Ben Foster credit, that was the climactic moment in the movie from my point of view. You really hate him after that, don't you? Yeah. We were able to do something worthwhile on that story was because... He had the brilliant line as well, Sue David Walsh and Sue his crummy little newspaper. (laughs) (laughs) And you know, when Lance went down, one of the first things he did was get his lawyers to contact that crummy little newspaper in England <laughs> and say, how much do I need to pay you to settle? Wow. And the Sunday Times said, one million pounds. We have 700,000 legal fees and we gave you 300,000. And Lance said, Okay, but the Sunday Times said, no, 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 that's not enough. We want one million plus an apology. And Lance said, I can't apologize. And he couldn't apologize because he would, that would be admitting to perjury. And the Metropolitan Police would have been coming after him. So what they decided to do, because the Sunday Times couldn't get an apology, wasn't coming. They accepted one million plus an amount of money in lieu of an apology. Right. I suppose, without being disrespectful to my to to my ultimate boss, I think you know, Mr. Murdoch would always be prepared to do a deal. <laughs> and the deal was basically confidential but it was 300,000 for the apology which was kind of fair really was money an issue for Lance? I mean obviously everyone came at him the sponsorship stopped but I mean he must have been a multi-multi-millionaire yes he was it is the truth but when he lost all his sponsorships and he basically paid all the people he needed to pay, he still was left with quite an amount of money. I mean, he's never going to starve. But the importance of that role is going to be accentuated in a world where people feel they can manipulate the truth, they can assassinate journalists, they can... They can close down the outlet. This is the wonderful close now, and you talk about... I find this staggering that, you know, the the sort of the culmination, the crescendo of all those years' work, and you're in this press conference, and you're driving around the M25, and you need to pull in at a Starbucks and try and stream it on a phone. I just can't believe it. I thought you'd be hiring the Odeon in Leicester Square like we should be here. You know, it would be this monumental moment where finally... But, of course, you're telling the story here. You talk to Betsy Andreo, and she feels exactly the same as you. It's that slight flatness I guess rather than this sort of you know euphoric feeling that you've done it of them were former teammates who recounted the extent of Lance's doping the anti-doping agency said he must get a life ban and he must be stripped of his seven Tour de France titles that went before the world cycling body and on October 22nd there was a press conference in Geneva where the then president Pat McQuaid said we're endorsing the recommendations of the United States Anti-Doping Agency. Armstrong gets a life ban and Armstrong loses his seven Tour de France titles. 
McQuaid said, Lance Armstrong deserves to be forgotten. I was driving around the M20. It's those little details, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> what did you have in the Starbucks just out of interest? I mean, the listeners will be keen to know. Uh, cappuccino, the you can see. They're brilliant. <laughs> can I ask Brian, where are you at this point? Are you watching this? I think I was watching it on a screen. In the Had you gone backstage? Had you? Yes, I must have been. How do you feel? And she said, anticlimactic. I said, I feel exactly the same. Which kind of... I remember walking around with you at lunch. It was like some sort of minor celebrity. I mean, people couldn't get enough of it. It's still in full Ken Foles' role, of course. I said to Betsy... My memory was that nobody would wanted to talk to me. Because <laughs> <laughs> they still believed I was Ken Falls. <laughs> and I was kind of this persona non grata. <laughs> it was horrendous. It was awkward. <laughs> it would have been odd if you popped out to the loo at that critical point where David stood up and you came back in. It was a bit weird. You'd have been like, oh, what's happened here? <laughs> yes, what happened? I said, Betsy, it's his birthday. I am really glad that we called you Ken Fors because there was a point where we were going to give you a sort of comedy name or a half comedy name <laughs> and that would have that would have ruined it I think yeah yeah no, it and, and the thing about it was Brian no disrespect but you looked like a Ken Fors <laughs> yeah it really does <laughs> you know you had that kind of Sharp mind, <laughs> and the way you delivered <laughs> that vision of journalism, I still find it compelling. <laughs> I've, I've got another level of joy out of this, which is David's being so convinced that Ken Force is. Yeah, I love it. I never knew this. <laughs> this is fantastic. I, I, had, I had zero doubt, even though I knew. It's not just how it affects the West. But we should just say to people listening on the track now, so the, the session finished, David closed to rapturous applause, and then there was a film, Ollie, that had been made, which is all of the news brands coming together. Here's Bryony from The Telegraph talking about why quality journalism is important and giving examples. You've got Harry talking about mental health. There's a guy from The Mirrors talking about North Korea. So this was sort of played at the end as sort of this brilliant reason just to drum home once again of, of how important funding this stuff is andrew mitchell who had an extremely rude contretemps with uh, i had the joy of having to play journalist and interviewer in these videos and oh you're interviewing journalists okay yeah yeah which was a new skill and, and well i wouldn't say skill it was it was a joy to do it just to stand in front of them and hear and hear the depth and the and even for someone that worked in news, I think it gave me a newfound, even higher level of respect for just the depth that you go to to get the story and, and, and how it completely consumes your life. And I think that uh, it's every one of these stories. There's so much footage, actually, we should probably release. Oh, really? More, yeah, and maybe we should do that. That was a bigger film. You know, when the, when it goes to DVD, yeah, you can yeah. you can put it all in there. Just reading my notes, when the animation, when you get the sort of the, the Ken Fours goes to fake news... We had loads of different things. The agency we used who created it, there was one version where the names jumbled up into other things, and I think it jumbled up into the name you came up with initially, Nick, but one of the things it jumbled up into was a swank fee, which apparently is, is also... Is also. So I, I don't know if we paid you a swank fee, Brian. I, I, I mean, I do hope so, but yeah. We sort of went against that because it was a bit comedy in a moment where it was sort of this yeah. grand thing, but there was lots of things in there. If you like, 
that's the problem. It's a huge problem because a lot of people read the stuff. I'd love to get your take, Nick and, and Ollie and David, really on. There's a real challenge, isn't there, with news at the moment in that arguably it's never been more important quality journalism, getting the facts right. But we've got this very odd conflict between eyeballs and traffic being higher than ever because, you know, people want to go to reliable sources, yet there is an issue with advertising money following that because there's a nervousness from advertisers around a, what is a, a pretty negative news cycle, clearly, or it's just simply being blocked. I mean, it's a big challenge, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Hard news is hard to monetize right now. And it's at a time when we are really delivering a service that is so, so important. And it really, really is. It's free. You can hear the frustration in my voice that, that from a commercial perspective, it's, it's becoming very difficult to persuade people that this is a good environment when it is, because this is where the eyeballs are and this is where the attention is. And do you think it's been a tough run as well? I mean, we, we, you know, you had all the Trump election, which, you know, David references. We had everything around Brexit, which was fairly polarising. We then had an election and kind of now this. We were talking to some of the our Australia colleagues. Well, we had bushfires on top of that as well. Like, you know, we've got this real issue. People just don't want to come near this this news cycle. So it feels like maybe it's just been this thing that's sort of, sort of sustained on and on. Is it not a time for newspapers to kind of re-establish their credibility, their trustworthiness and their consistency in terms of sticking to the truth, becoming verifiers of fact and saying to people, we appreciate that a lot of people out there are prepared to lie. We appreciate that some people, because of their partisanship, will accept lies from the people they want to support. But we're not going to change. We are going to stand for what we see as the truth. And I think if newspapers do that, without needing to shout about it, I think it will bring a reward and it's really important that we stick to that. And then commercially, of course, you know, the context of truth and credibility is incredibly valuable for advertisers. You know, you, there has now been a, a cycle of news brand collaboration ever since this. I'm not saying this started it, but ultimately, if you look at even the way news brands have joined together for the government campaigns recently. Yeah, yeah it's amazing. Incredible cut through. You've seen, you know, real more galvanised and collaborative spirit and that will carry. Brian, give us your take. I mean, you're sat watching this in beautiful California, I'd imagine, basked in the uh, the midday sun. <laughs> give us your take on what's happening there, because it, you know, we sometimes feel like we've got a bit of a hard time of it here. But I mean, it's kind of different level, isn't it? In terms of, I guess, the treatment of journalists. Yeah, we saw very recently, you know, a clip in the last few days. Uh, sum it up for us on, on how you feel being being back in the US. Gosh, the US is a very polarized place beyond everything I've ever experienced. Of course, California is a different country. Not a whole lot of political differences going on, certainly where, you know, where I am. The thing that really amazed me about the whole project from the very beginning, when you first sent a script or something, was um, I've always thought of newspapers as very tribal. You know, I read The Guardian. 
Right. And to have all those newspapers on board kind of blew my mind. Always been puzzled by journalists moving from this newspaper to that newspaper because I thought, well, how could you possibly work for the Times? How could you possibly work for the Daily Mail? The US just doesn't have that great tradition of newspapers. The online thing is changing that. There seems to be more of a, because you can subscribe to the New York Times when you're living in California, mm. it is becoming a little bit more of, of what do you read? So there's a shift. I mean, it's gone far quicker than I ever remember it. We were at 20 minutes and we were still cruising, but I just think of any session we've ever done, I mean, it could still be going on now and I don't think people would have minded. People said some wonderful things about it. And as I said, genuinely, it's the had the best feedback I think we ever had. I think second place is probably, we had Stephen Fry years and years and years ago. So I mean, it's better than Stephen Fry. I mean, that's what the, <laughs> yeah. that's what we should have touted it as. I mean, I'm sort of, it was a real missed opportunity, which, you know, better, better than Stephen Fry. <laughs> but final thoughts it was three years ago nick sort of touched on it earlier it does feel like this kind of thing you know we, there's still a need to do it fake news definitely hasn't gone away alternative that facts whatever you want to call it upcoming u.s election we're in the middle of you know probably the easily the greatest crisis of our generation so david why don't you close for us on uh, why quality journalism why we need it and why we need to fund it properly because People are confused and there is so much spinning of stories, making up narratives. People do really have this yearning for something that they can trust. I mentioned in the talk at the Barbican that when Trump started to run for president, he continually referred to the New York Times as the ailing New York Times. And it was like he was trying to drive the newspaper into oblivion. And I think a lot of people felt that what the New York Times needed at that time was support. And of course, the New York Times rate of subscriptions increased exponentially. To a point now where newspaper people like the same as me are thinking the New York Times is actually getting too big <laughs> and it's casting a shadow over all the other newspapers in the US. <laughs> so you've got to be careful on that side. But as soon as Trump went after the New York Times, people said no. And I think what they were saying, in fact, we need journalism and we need journalism to be trustworthy and high quality. And that's the challenge that we've all got who work in this business. Thank you. And well, thank you all as well. I mean, it was no mean feat and probably beyond my wildest dreams that we would, as I said in the intro, get the band back together. But it's been <laughs> it's been a pleasure to watch this back with you. I must say thank you, Brian. Thank you, David. Thank you, Nick. And thank you, Ollie. And that's it from us. We're going to put the links in the show notes. Go and relive it for yourself. Watch it as we were watching it here. And there's loads of other frills around it, which we'll make available as well. But thank you very, very much indeed for listening. And thank you to all of our brilliant guests. Thanks for organising all this. Uh, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, guys. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. It's the gift that keeps on giving. 
Ken Fors listening party there, recorded in 2020, but based on the Future of News session that ran at Engage 2017. I could literally talk and talk on this one. I can't fathom what we'd have done had we not pulled it off in that moment. It's one of those that you look back on and you know is a risk at the time, but looking back probably now, it was absolutely massive. (laughs) it's sort of one of those career limiting things maybe and I've not been at the IB for that long so maybe you feel sort of slightly braver if you're in something new but obviously the payoff was incredible as well and I fundamentally believe of all the things I've ever seen at Engage both working there and before I joined is still the best thing I've ever seen will we ever do something like that again who knows it was truly unforgettable though to get Ken and David back on the same call from different countries and different time zones with all the technical hiccups we experienced in trying to get a decent take. It really was something else. Hopefully that's given you a taste of what's coming next week at Engage 2022 on Tuesday the 26th of April down at the Londoner in Leicester Square. If you want to get a ticket, get one quickly. They are selling out very, very, very fast. We're almost at capacity. The few remaining tickets you can get at ibuk.com forward slash engage hyphen 2022. And as with all our events, agency and advertiser members come for free. Enjoy the other Engage episodes featuring Stacey Dooley and Stephen Bartley. You can find them in exactly the same place as you found this one and hope to see you at the Londoner next Tuesday, the 26th of April. Thanks for listening. IAB UK, building a sustainable future for digital advertising.